Paul writes, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of of his resurrection. As we're approaching this passage, this portion of the passage, last week I reminded you that Paul is writing the book of Romans like a dialectic in which he's carrying on a conversation with different individuals. And yet, it's like there's a number of individuals at the table where Paul is speaking. So and sometimes, at some point, he's speaking to the Christians in Rome. He's speaking to the believing Jew, and he's speaking to the believing Gentile that have gathered together a part of the church in Rome as he's writing this letter. But then at other times you see Paul pivoting where he's speaking to the unbelieving Gentile. And another time he's speaking to the unbelieving Jew. So they're all at the table and he's carrying on this conversation. And he's beginning to ask a question that I believe is being asked of him by the unbelievers. Should we sin that grace might abound? They're beginning to understand that Paul is teaching them that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And in that way you are justified or made right before God and that the law came simply to reveal how sinful we are. We see our own sinfulness and our awareness of it begins to abound and accumulate in our lives and we take full account of it. It's at that measure that we turn in repentance and we put our faith in Christ and we find that now grace abounds. And so the answer to that is, well, then if you're not saved by your works and by your moral activity, why not just continue sinning even more the more grace should abound? And that's their question. And maybe that's even sometimes the question that believers can ask themselves. They can adopt it as a kind of way, it's called antinomianism. I prove my faith in Jesus Christ. I prove that I'm trusting Him completely, and therefore I can do whatever I want, and I just go to Him and find forgiveness because it's by His grace that I'm saved alone. And Paul is addressing them and answering that question they're asking by saying, how shall we who have died to sin continue any longer in it? That's how he begins his response to them. And, and now Romans 6 is an answer to that question, but it's now as if at the table Paul pivots and he turns to the believer. And his message is really to the believers. He's been speaking about the justifying work of God by which we're saved. And now he turns to delve into a ramification of that justifying work. And that is that it leads us into a sanctifying work. If you claim that you are just by, by faith in Jesus Christ and you've been made right by Jesus Christ. And that work does not immediately turn into your life into pursuit after holiness. To live in the sanctifying power of Jesus Christ you might at some point in time begin to question whether you really have come to him in faith and believed in him for his justifying work. And so Paul now is pivoting and he's turning towards the believer. And the message he has here particularly is for the person who says they're a Christian, who says they put faith in Jesus Christ and they believed in him. And Paul is taking them at their word. He's saying, all right, if this is what you believe, here's what's happened and here's what God has and what God is wanting to do and what, how God wants to work in your life to lead you into a life of holiness and purity before him. Paul is actually, in a sense, in chapter 6 and chapter 7, turning to address them. In chapter 8, he's going to turn back, in a sense, to address this idea of justification by faith. But here he's turning to address this ramification or what happens when we're justified by faith. And that is it also turns us into a life of holiness. He's addressing the issue of sanctification. And so... In many ways, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you haven't believed Him and put your faith in Him, much of what Paul is saying here won't apply to you. You won't understand it. You won't get it. 
even if you've made a profession of faith, but it's only a profession and not a possession, you won't be able to claim the things that Paul is saying here. And that's why, by the way, you're failing at your Christian life. is because you can't claim these things to be true of yourself. You've got a name and you've got a title and you've said, I believed in Jesus Christ and I've had my emotional moment and I've said my prayer and I've gone on to perform Christian duties, but the fact is your life is this ongoing progression of continuing in sin, living in it. You can't say, how shall we live in it any longer? Because we do, you do. Well, if that's going on, it may be because you can't apply the things that are being taught here. Or it may be that you're not applying it. It's true, and you've not learned to apply these things, and you need to. So one way or another, it's kind of a bit of a diagnostic. There's two choices here as you look at this passage. And as we'll go through this whole passage, it's either I'm not truly born again, and I cannot claim these things, or I have been born again, but I have not stepped forward to claim and live and reckon in these truths. That's your options. Those are your options. Let's see. Let's go on. Let the Holy Spirit bring these to you and speak to Him as He will. The first thing I would just say here is, it should be obvious to you, one way or another, that a Christian can sin. A Christian can fall into sin. A Christian can even let sin reign in their bodies. They can obey sin. They can yield their bodies up and their flesh up to be instruments of sin. The, the Christian can sin. But the true Christian cannot continue on in such ways for they're opposed to the very thing that he's become. I'm going to give you the application and the point of this whole message we're going to have this morning in just a few words here. And it's this. Jesus didn't merely die on the cross for what you had done in committing sins. He also died for what you were and had become as a sinner. He didn't just die to take away your sins. He died to take away the sinner and to replace him or her with a saint. He didn't just die to die to take the punishment for the sins you had committed. He died for what those sins had made of you and what you were and why, where those sins rose out of. And that was out of your own sinful flesh and sinful heart and sinful existence. And he died in order to not only remove the sin, but to remove the sinner from that place and to replace it with a saint. And if you've been born again of Jesus Christ, you are not the sinner you once were. Instead, you are a holy one who is on the way to a glorious future. And because this is true, the true believer cannot continue in sins. They can face temptations and they can be difficult and they can be hard and they can be test and they can fail and they can falter, but they can't continue in these things. The answer for sinning for the Christian is found in this. I'm a new creature in Jesus Christ. I've been born again. I've been regenerated. That's our answer for it. We face temptations and we face trials and we face the sin that's roiling in our flesh that permeates the cells of our body that activates itself in the mental synapses of our brains that excites what we see and what we hear and what we touch we address what is roiling in our flesh and we address it with this certain knowledge and this certain confidence even that we are new people in Jesus Christ that the flesh is making its appeal, in a sense, within us to someone who's no longer there because we've changed and we're different. And so we 
grab hold of. Here's a way to move into the life of sanctification. It's to grab hold of passages like 2 Corinthians 5.17 where it says, and hold it by faith. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, everything has been made new. Or Ephesians 2.10 where it talks about in verses 8 and 9, for we are saved through faith by grace alone. And then in Ephesians 2.10 it says this, that we are His workmanship, created, something that is created in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, for good works that He's prepared in advance for us to do. I'm a new creation. Something has changed in me. I'm not what I was. And this is how I confront the challenges of sin and the temptations that come upon me. So Paul is basically saying in this passage that a regenerate person is not content to be saved alone from his sin if he's going on and sinning. He's not content just to be saved from the consequences of his sin. The regenerate person also longs to and lives in a power that longs to overcome the ongoing expression of sin in his life. He doesn't want to go that way. He doesn't want to live in that way. And so Paul says, actually, the impulse of a regenerate person is, how can we, how can I continue in this way? Because it's completely foreign to everything that he is. So Paul shows us that the regenerate, born-again man or woman has a totally different view of sin. But at the same time, Paul tells us, it's not simply that they have a totally different view of sin. It's not simply that they look at sin and say, how can we continue in sin now that we know how defiling it is and how awful it is and how terrible it is and how destructive it is and that its way leads unto death. And so we have this enlightened view of sin. It's not simply how can we continue because now we have knowledge of what sin is and what it's doing in our life. An individual might go and find out how to make hot dogs and decide, how can we ever eat a hot dog again because we know what hot dogs are made of? I don't want to know. I just want to enjoy a hot dog. And maybe some people don't want to know what's in their flesh and don't want to know what sin does. But Paul is not saying that you've changed what you do in your life because you've learned what sin does and the consequences that sin has. And that's not where the power lies in the how can we. How can we continue in sin? He says, because we've died to it. And what Paul says is the great impulse against the temptation and the call and the beckoning call of our very bodies to yield to sin is this. We don't continue in it. We don't want to continue it because our relationship to sin has changed. It's not simply our knowledge of sin has changed. Our relationship to sin has changed. We have died to sin. Therefore, we can no longer continue in it. That's the thing we're saying. That's the thing that Paul's discussing. And so this was our last point last week. It's going to be our first point this week because we need to look at this more completely. And it's this. The regenerate person has died to sin. The regenerate person has died to sin. And again, what Paul is talking about here is the work of regeneration that took place at the cross of Jesus Christ, being born again. All right. So there are two great works that take place in our lives in salvation. One of those works is the work of justification in which the Lord Jesus takes upon himself the punishment and penalty of all my sin and bears it in my place. It's all put upon the sinless son of God suffering in my place for my sins. And then he provides for me or opens up to me the reception of being covered and cloaked, you might say, in, in all of his perfect righteousness. So that when God looks at me forensically, legally, objectively, God sees that my sins have been completely paid for. And instead, in its place, I am covered, in a sense, with all of the credit of Christ's righteousness. Last week, I talked about the idea that a lot of people approach morality as a transactional thing with God. I'll be a little bit good. 
I'll do good works, and then God will bless me. And maybe if I'm really good, God will give me a little piece of heaven, or I get a little claim on heaven. And we said, that's not true. And there are a couple reasons why that's not true. One of the reasons that it's not true is because you can't give anything to God that God needs. You got nothing to transact with God in your moral behavior. He doesn't need it. Not only that, God will not be any man's debtor. It's not like God will say, oh, well, you were really good. Now I owe you something, right? God doesn't owe you anything. You cannot put God under any claims. He'll be no man's debtor. But the third reason we said is because you got nothing to offer. You are completely and totally entrenched in sin. And even the righteousness that you bring forward in your good works is filthy rags. You got nothing to barter with. But there is a transaction that takes place to make you right and just. Jesus came, lived the perfectly sinless, holy life, pure in every way. And then he went to transact with the justice of God that was against us and said, I'll lay down my life for their sins. And then I will give in exchange for their sins my holiness and my sinlessness and my righteousness and I'll credit it to their account. There is a moral transaction that takes place. It's a moral transaction that Jesus Christ took in our place at the cross, meeting all the just requirements of God to make us right and just with Him. And that's one thing that takes place in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's justification. But there's another work that takes place at the cross of Jesus Christ, and it's regeneration. It's this that Paul's talking about here, regeneration. And regeneration is where God gives us a new life. God comes and He makes us new creatures. And at the cross, the work of regeneration took place. In other words, all that was required for me to be justified took place at the cross. But you know, all that was required for you to be made new as a new creature took place at the cross as well. But it didn't just involve a new birth. You know, oftentimes when a person thinks of being born again, they think that, well, what happens when I receive Jesus Christ as my Savior, at that moment, I, in a sense, became, and this is not wrong, at that moment, I was filled and imbued with the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Jesus brought to me his resurrected life. And I received the resurrection life. And we, in a sense, we trace the regenerate life, the new life we have in Christ to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we have to go back a little further. The new life begins at the cross, not at the empty tomb. It begins at the cross with Jesus. Because before there could be a new life in you, The old life in you had to be put to death. You had to die. And Paul is saying here that regeneration began when the old man you were died in Christ, was put to death in Christ. And when Jesus died in some wonderful, profound way, you died as well. And so the original Greek word here in 2 verse B, where it says, we who have died, that is a verb, have died in the aorist tense. And it speaks of a clear, definite point in the life of the believer who puts his faith in Jesus Christ where they died to sin. It wasn't an act of their self-discipline. It wasn't an act of their self-reformation. It wasn't learning how to somehow stifle themselves over and over again until eventually they choked themselves out, right? This was a moment, a decisive moment, in which they died to sin so that they can say, we are dead to sin and... That moment took place when Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago. This is the wonderful part. It's a hard part. It's a, it's a mystery. But the mystery here is that somehow in the moment in which I put my faith in Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who offered up this sacrifice for me once for all, 
I am, my life, my existence, my old self that rules and reigns with me at that moment is transported into the cross of Christ. And in Christ, because I believe and trust in him, I meet him in his death on the cross. And I die with him there on the cross. And then I receive from him life. His resurrected life comes pouring out through me. But something about this is very real. It's Justification is this objective reality where God pays the penalty for my sin and then he covers me in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and it's this objective truth. I don't necessarily experience it. But on this other side, regeneration, it's a subjective thing. It's something God does that changes the essence of who I am. It's not something that just covers me. It changes the essence of who I am. What happens is the old man I was dies and I become a whole new creature in Jesus Christ. And my life of holiness goes from there. And so what Paul uses here to explain this are three phrases of experience. They are things that are experiential. They're things that impact your life. They're not just legal terms. You can be adopted and not know it, right? You can be forgiven actually and not know it. The Bible says we're seated right now in Jesus Christ in heavenly places. Doesn't feel like it, right? You can be covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Doesn't always look like it. But it's true if I put my faith in him. But when you're regenerate and born again, it shows up because the very fabric of your being is changed. It's changed. And so Paul is talking about this dramatic experiential change. And believe it or not, it doesn't come the moment you come in touch with the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. He says it comes in the moment by faith in which you come in contact with the death of Jesus Christ. And when you come into Christ, you go into his death. Something in you dies. He describes it in three ways, with three words. We're going to look at it in verses 3, 4, and 5. And the first thing he says is this in verse 3. We were baptized into his death. We were baptized into his death. The word there literally means to immerse. We were immersed into Christ's death. And so, when a person gives their life to Jesus Christ, prior to this, Paul has been describing how individuals, unsaved individuals, before they come to Christ, are in Adam. And death is reigning in Adam, and sin is reigning in Adam. And then he describes the believer who, through faith, is now in Christ. He's a new creature. He's in Christ. And you are, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, as really in Christ right now as you are in the world. But there's a difference. The Bible says the things of this world are passing away. They're passing away. But the sun will bide forever. The world is going to pass away under God's judgment just like the world was inundated with a flood so many years ago at Noah's time. But Jesus is the ark, and you're in the ark in the midst of the world, and you will be with him forever and ever. You are in him, very really in Christ. And in this wonderful identity with Jesus Christ, you are baptized into his life. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and let me read to you verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we're given an example of this identity we have in Christ. It's speaking about the nation of Israel as they were brought into a deep, profound identity and experience, a bonding experience with Moses. You might remember the story that the nation of Israel has come down to the Red Sea. God's own Shekinah presence is blazing like a fire before them. Then the Red Sea is parted as the Egyptian armies are coming against them, and they follow through the Red Sea covered by this cloud of God's Shekinah glory presence leading them through the Red Sea, and they follow Moses through the Red Sea to the other side, and they walk out from their slavery. And verses 1 and 2 says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware 
that all our fathers were under the cloud, that's the Shekinah glory, and all passed through the sea, that's the heaped up waters of the Red Sea, just imagine what that was like. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. All of you were immersed by that experience into an identity with Moses that was profound, in which as a result, Moses became their leader, Moses became their guide, Moses became the one they turned to and looked to. It was an immersive experience of the Israelites in which they were identified with and bonded to Moses as their leader. In this passage that we're reading right now, Paul is telling us that we are immersed into Jesus Christ. But he says that we're not just immersed into Jesus Christ, it says we are immersed into his death. Somehow, when Christ died, I was put into him and into that death, and his death became my death and was as real an experience as if I had been an Israelite who had walked with Moses through the Red Sea. I was just as really baptized and immersed into the dying of Jesus Christ on the cross as those Jews and Israelites were, in a sense, immersed to and built into a bonded identity with Moses as they walked through the waters of the Red Sea. One commentator has put it this way, By trusting in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we were, by an unfathomable mystery, taken back 2,000 years, as it were, and made to participate in our Savior's death, baptized into his death. The next thing he says in verse 4 is, we were buried with him through baptism and death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Now, you know, when you want to carry on a conversation and you've tried to bring it into a certain conversation, maybe you've had some disagreement with somebody and you've gone over the issue over and over again, and you finally felt like it's been resolved, and it comes back and they bring the issue up, you say, wait, that, that, that issue's dead, right? You say that issue's dead. No, you have to go stronger than that. You say, that issue is dead and buried, right? It's not good enough to be dead. We buried that. The word here takes us together with Christ, and not only we die with him on the cross, we go in the grave with him where we're buried with him. And now the anticipation is buried into that cross that we are going to rise with him out of the grave. But first, our first contact, here's the point, our first contact with the Savior in this new life that anticipates resurrected life is we go into the grave with Him and we're buried with Him as well. So something about who we are, something that we are in faith is buried with Christ in the grave. And then the third thing we find here in verse 5. In verse 5 it says that we were united with Christ. You see that it says that we have been united with Christ in His death? And the word united there is the word and symphidos, and it means to be planted together. And so the image here now is having been buried, but it's like, it's like a seed that's been planted into the ground and buried into the ground, and then it's, what happens with it? it? It comes forth not as what it was when it went into the ground. It comes forth as a shoot, this plant that rises up that bears fruit. And just as we were buried into the grave, and yet what comes out of the grave that was buried with Christ is not the body that went into it, but the glorified life, the resurrected life that comes out of the tomb. So we go into the ground buried together with Him, it says. United together means put together like a seed in the ground with Him. Nor that we might come forward as a new planting and a new life. Baptism, what happens in baptism? We go into the water expressing our complete surrender and submission to Christ and we rise out of the water in His resurrection life and we are baptized in His death in order that we might come out of the rivers of death into life. We are buried in order that we might experience His resurrection life. We are planted in the earth in order that we might come out. Do you see the point? 
There is a dying and there's a living that comes in this that's being referred to. It's being expressed to us. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He took something of ourselves and nailed it to the cross with Him, and we died with Him. So, here's our application. Again, I'm speaking to the person who's born again, the person who's a professed believer in Jesus Christ. And this may seem somewhat controversial to you, and I'm not going to be able to unpack this this week entirely, but I'll have to give you time to process it and think about it. But there was something that was you, that was you, that died at the cross with Jesus Christ, that died in Him. And that death was real. It's not a theoretical thing. It's not an objective thing. It's not a forensic thing. It's not a legal term. It's speaking of an actual experienced thing that changed who you are. The question is what died? Well, at the moment of faith in Jesus Christ, God took the fallen, sinful, spiritually corrupted old person that was tarnished and depraved in spirit and exists in all the children of disobedience. That was you. He took your sin nature and God nailed it to the cross of Jesus Christ. And the person you were died with Jesus. You were baptized into Him at death. You were buried with Him at the cross. You were united with Him in that planting at death. And at that time, your old self, your old nature, that sinful person you once were, once and for all, was done away with. You died. That's what He's saying. You died. It's been crucified. He doesn't say you crucify it. You work at it. You just keep crucifying yourself over and over again. You just keep dying to yourself over and over again. You just keep... He doesn't say it. He says it died. It died. And in fact, you'll see this over and over again. Whenever you read the passages that talk about the old man, it doesn't refer to it. There are some translations that are not good. If you look at it, the the verb is always in the aorist. It's speaking of something that happened in the past that was definite and solid and firm that has continuing impact on the way we live from here on out. So on the cross, your old self died, your sin nature died, and the Christian no longer, and this is the part that might be startling to you, does not have, in a sense, a sin nature. It's not like I have one little angel on my side, which is the new man I am in Christ, and the old man over here, and they're both chirping between me, and I'm divided. It's not what it is. I'm a new man in Christ. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. That's what the Word of God says to us. Romans 6, 6 says this, Knowing this, that your old man was crucified with him. It happened. It's done. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we read it. Old things have passed away. Colossians 3, look at, turn to Colossians chapter 3 for a second. Let's look at another passage that refers to this. You'll find this in Ephesians 4, 22 as well, but Ephesians 4, 22 does not translate the verb, the heiress that's there, It doesn't translate it as an aorist, but as a present tense. But here in Colossians 3, Colossians 3, 9 and 10, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You see that? You've put it off. You've put him off. And you've put on. And he's been created. That's the language. The scriptures offer us and speak to us. This old man was our unregenerate nature, our sin nature, our spirits fallen and in rebellion against God. And that nature that had no natural ability to obey or please God, and that nature has died with Christ at the cross. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, that sin nature, that spirit, that was your conscious self behind your physical existence, merged into the death 
of the eternal Son of God and was carried away to burial and was planted in the ground with Jesus Christ, dead. Dead. That's what Paul said. And so as a result, this death has severed our relationship with sin. It severed our relationship with sin. It no longer has the same claim on us. At that moment in time, it was a moment in time in which not only was I justified, but at that moment in time in which I walked into a general life because Christ put to death what I was and gave me life in Himself. He gave me a whole new being and a whole new existence. So we died to sin. And this is not merely that we died to a sense of its condemnation. It's not merely that we died to a sense of its shame and its guilt, but we died to its power. We died to its claim on us. We died to its enticements and its bondage and its addictions and its degradation and its defilement and its claim to demand our obedience. It's call to us to yield up our bodies to it. It's desire to reign in our lives. We died to all that. Look at Romans 5, verses 20 and 21. And there in verse 20, it says that sin abounded with us. And in verse 21, it says death reigned in us. But now, through faith in Jesus Christ, what it says is that grace abounds even more. And now we reign in life through Jesus Christ. What a switch. What a transference has taken place. Now, here's what Paul is not saying. He's not saying because we died to sin that we don't sin. That's not what he's saying. Go to Romans 6, verses 11 and 13. You'll see that's why Paul can't be saying that. Verses 11 through 13, Paul says this. Even so, reckon, add up the numbers. Reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God and Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go yielding your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God, to those who are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness of God. Paul is not saying that because we have died to sin, he's not saying because we've died to sin, that sin has died away to us. Sin still comes against us. We're dead to it, but it's still coming up against us. So what changed in the relationship? What really changed in the relationship? And we'll have to make this the concluding thought for today here and try to explain this. I'm going to give you a metaphor that the Bible gives us that would help us understand this. The Bible speaks about, in 1 Corinthians, about a woman who's married to her husband and the relationship she has with her husband. In 1 Corinthians 7, 39, we read this. The wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is freed to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So here's the analogy some people would make. He says, well, you see, it's kind of like this. Somewhere that death, that old man, that husband has died of sin, and you're no longer wed to him, and you're no longer bound to him. But it's... A poor analogy because it's actually not sin that died. Sin is still alive. Sin is still abounding all around us. It's, it's the old nature that was once you that was married to sin. Before you came to Christ, your old nature was... You didn't know where you ended and where sin took over. It was all a part. It was all intermeshed. And what God did is He took that old man, that sin nature, and He put him to death. And you died. And He put him in the grave. He baptized you into the death of Jesus Christ. He put you into the grave with Jesus Christ and buried you there. He planted you into Jesus Christ in order that you might rise again, not with that old nature anymore, but with a new nature made in the likeness of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ living and abiding in you so you're a new person in Jesus Christ. The husband's sin has not died. It's, it's you, the wife. It's you, that old nature, that very old spirit of you that was so bound up in him that's died. So now, sin comes around again. I, by the way, that's why Romans 6, 7 says this. For he that is dead is free from sin. Right? 
you know what? You're free. You're free from the husband's sin because you've died. The old man he laid claim to, the old nature that he was wed to and married to has died and the marriage no longer exists. But what happens is sin comes around and he asserts himself like the old husband he was. He comes to you and he makes his claims on you again. He comes knocking at your door. He lays temptation against you and enticements against your flesh. And he tries to assert his husband rights over your life as if you were still his wife. As still you were still the old man you once were. Paul is saying that here's what you can honestly say. I'm not your wife anymore. In fact, that old mate that you used to hang out with that was once me has died and I'm a new person. He's dead. God put a new person, a new spirit, a new life with me. That old spiritual man that was governing this body, God put to death and drove into the grave with Jesus Christ, and he gave me a new spirit and a new life that dwells and lives in me, created in the likeness of Christ Jesus, and now he reigns and he rules within this body. And as you come and bring your temptations against me, you have no claim on me. You have no call to make against me. Because now I no longer belong to you. I once did. I once was wed to you. But now... I have communion through the Holy Spirit with Jesus Christ and the Spirit of Christ and He lives and dwells in me and I am in Him and He is in me. I am His and He is mine. That's the regenerate life. That's the new life we have. That's the claim that Paul is saying we can make. And so here's an application for you. When sin comes knocking at your door and temptation comes knocking at your door, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to panic. It has no claim upon you. You've died and you're dead to that sin. And in fact, if you're yielding to it, you're yielding to a lie. Because it's not what you've made me do. And if you continue to yield to it, if you can continue to yield to it, and that's how you can live, it's because maybe you're not the new person you thought you were. You still have the old man, still raging and still bound to him, and you are just playing games and living under some assumed presumption that wasn't real. But if, if you've come to him, you've believed in him, you've trusted him, you don't have to yield to him at all. We can approach sin... And we can actually speak back to it with a sense of self-confidence. And there is a time in which we can be confident. We say, we, how shall we, how shall we continue any longer in it? And there's room for a little self-assertion here. Because we're dead to that. Now we live in the authority of our faith and belief in Jesus Christ. We've died with Him. So Paul says in Galatians 2.20, listen to his assertions here. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life that I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Seven times in that one verse, Paul speaks of himself. But he speaks of it in the light of this death that took place and this new life that he has. And he asserts that new life over the temptations and trials of life that have come upon him. I've been crucified. I'm dead. So it's right. We can assert ourselves. There's a legitimate point at which you can speak of yourself, and it's when you pour that old husband's sin who has come to lay his claims on the old self and the old person you were and the sin nature you once had. Now you're supposed to speak by faith in Jesus Christ and by faith in his death and by faith in the life he's given to you. In him, all that he is is yours. In him, all that he's accomplished is yours. In him, there was a certain death that took place, a certain life that took place so that you can say, I am crucified. I'm dead to you. I can continue only to live for him. I've been made and fashioned for his glory and his honor, for his fellowship. How could I? How could I? It's not consistent with my new nature. There's more to say about these things.
there are things we're going to have to, if it's true that all that's true, why do I still have all this roiling of sin? I still have all this confrontation that deals and comes against me over and over again. We'll have to talk about that. We'll have to talk about that later, but just for now, just for now, settle yourselves on a truth that can begin to set you free. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, I am dead to sin. I am dead to sin. Let that be the first line of truth you speak against its temptation and enticement. Let's bow our heads. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truths, O God. We pray for the salvation of souls. Those even present within the assembled communities of worship and fellowship throughout our valley and here in this place. We pray for that certain and solid salvation in which at the cross an individual by faith meets all that's necessary for their sins to be forgiven and taken away and for them to be made right with you. And we pray, dear God, that they would have that solid salvation in which at the cross they also meet the demise and death of their own selves into the ground and into the grave and taken away and done away with in order that by faith they might have just life in Jesus Christ, His exchanged life abiding and dwelling within them, a new spiritual man reigning through the Spirit, governing the very bodies they have. Lord, we look at our lives, we look at our flesh, we look at our world, and it's out of control and we can't gain the upper hand and even when we do, it betrays us. What shall overcome the world? What shall overcome these things if not the transforming power, the life-giving, regenerating power of Jesus Christ? Received, embraced, confessed by faith. Praise you for that. We thank you that when we come before the cup that we're about ready to eat, that it represents this death and we drink it in. And it represents this life that follows death. Life that we may have and we may claim and that we live in and we celebrate through Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.